You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In this episode of the Bigger Picture series, Anastasia Kapatis speaks to Elmira Bayrasli, co-founder of Foreign Policy Interrupted and director of Bard College's Global and International Affairs program. Their conversation focuses on gender, geopolitics and national security. They discuss the importance of women in national security and the critical contributions that women make to global security and what motivated Elmira to co-found Foreign Policy Interrupted. Elmira, welcome so much to this special series of the Aspie Strategist Pod, where we look at some of the really big structural issues that are impacting global security right now. What we're going to talk about today is gender and geopolitics and national security. And to just really kick it off, let's ask the very big question, why does gender matter in geopolitics and to national security? Well, Anastasia, thank you so much for inviting me on, and I'm so glad that you're focusing in on this topic. Women make up half the world's population, and when you are taking a look at whatever issue it is, obviously I think the one foremost in all of our minds is COVID-19 and global public health. I think another one is always national security, defense issues. Australia and the United States, along with the United Kingdom, just signed a military agreement, AUKUS. Climate change is obviously another transnational issue that a lot of our countries are paying attention to. Economic issues. All of these impact and involve women. And I think it's been a gross oversight to exclude women from the conversation from the policy making and the strategizing on whatever foreign policy and geostrategic issue there is. Because not only does it impact women, it involves women. And you can't really have a comprehensive solution when you don't have the main players and the people involved and who are impacted on it at the table talking about what the issues are what the problems are, and what the possible solutions are. Women definitely are impacted by everything that's going on in geopolitics right now, and they're also organising and participating in trying to address some of those issues. What I'm trying to get at here is, do gender inequalities in themselves, like inequality, have a negative impact on national security and global security? So when we allow these kinds of inequalities to keep metastasizing. What impact does that have on our collective security? Absolutely. If we don't involve women in geopolicy making, what we do see is poor outcomes on issues. You know, I think there's lots of studies on when women are at the table during conflict resolution negotiations, the peace agreements last, I think, 80% longer. You know, I take a look at Afghanistan and I know that the Americans really tried hard to involve women in the peace process, but were women involved in the consultation about going into Afghanistan? Were women involved in a consultation of pulling out of Afghanistan? My guess is they weren't, because if they were, I think the actions of the U.S. government would have been profoundly different if women were involved in those talks. When you take a look at also another major transnational issue that has been plaguing all of us, terrorism. Certainly for the Americans, that really came to light on 9-11-2001. And what I have seen is we've taken a very 
singular one-dimensional lens to this matter. And we have tackled terrorism through a primarily white male military lens where the answer is dropping bombs and sending in military into whether it was Afghanistan or into Iraq and dealing with terrorism essentially through the use of force. If you take a look at the roots of terrorism, a lot of it has to do with poverty. It has to do with exclusion. It has to do with marginalization. When I take a look at the men and women in Europe that flocked to Syria to fight on behalf of ISIS, a lot of them came from impoverished communities. A lot of them were first-generation immigrants to whether it was France or whether it was the Netherlands or whatever country they went to, and they felt marginalized. And if we had women involved talking about the roots of what terrorism were and how we could actually tackle that at its source, rather than going out and dropping bombs and sending out drones, I think we would have better outcomes on terrorism. And I think we would also see countries collaborating in a way where we're not right now. I think there's a lot of blame and accusations going on. I think that there is a lot of suspicion going on, a lot of finger pointing. Certainly there's a lot of racial profiling. But if we could actually engage women and experts who really understand the causes of what drives people to extremism, I think we would have a better solution and outcome to it. In terms of these kinds of very, uh, very male worldviews, as you described them, that are kind of about hard power and military hardware and a military first kind of solution to some of these transnational, very intractable and socially derived security problems. When that kind of thing is reported on, it makes a really great headline. Does this also reflect gender inequalities in major media environments? I think the media is a separate issue. I definitely do think that certainly war and atrocities and all of those things are something that people turn their attention to. And so they make good headlines. However, when we also look at the composition of the media, the media is largely controlled by white men. And I'm speaking about the English-speaking media, whether it is in the United States, whether it's in Australia, it's largely white men that are owners of these newspapers and television channels and all of these media outlets. Their editors are also largely men. And so I also do think that is the news being covered in a way that reflects what people actually want to read and hear? And there is this assumption that war makes good headlines, but I could also see, you know, getting in depth into issues also is something that's very compelling. And so as we've seen more women buy subscriptions to magazines and books and to newspapers, what you have seen is a very big change in how the media is being covered. And I think that the media has a role to play here in how they are covering geopolitical issues, foreign policy, international relations, because I do think that they're covering it from a very white male-centered lens. We've touched briefly on media, um, but what about technology platforms, the big social media platforms and the algorithms that run it? Is this both a source of gender inequality, but also a kind of gender inequality that, that has global impacts on political systems and the stability of them. The inequality that 
technology platforms produces among genders, and I think among minorities and races, is very profound. And that's primarily because of who is creating the back end and the coding of these social media platforms. And again, when you take a look at them, they are largely white men who are creating the coding, they're creating the infrastructure, and they're the architects of all of these different platforms that we are creating. And they often don't think about how women are interacting um, with technology. They're not thinking about how minorities and people of color are interacting with this technology. A good example is when you take a look at Google Translate, I am a Turkish speaker. Turkish is a gender neutral language. That means there are no gender identifiers. So there's no she, her, he, him. But when you take something and you want to translate something from Turkish into English, the default is always he, him, particularly when it comes to things associated with power and authority or knowledge. But when you talk about something that has to do with housekeeping or with food preparation, the default, it's actually female. And so you can already see how who's programming the back end of these technologies does matter because they are perpetuating these gender stereotypes and the unconscious bias that I think a lot of us carry around. And I don't blame men entirely for this. I think women also carry around a lot of unconscious bias. But I also think another thing that the technology companies really neglect is how much abuse there is directed towards women online, whether it is on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Women are disproportionately targeted where they are threatened, they are bullied, they are insulted. There have been a number of studies that take a look at this And this is primarily a reaction to women being able to speak up. You know, I run an organization called Interrupter and a newsletter, and I know we're going to talk about that in a moment. But the one thing that I found is people are always telling women to be more confident. But the reality is what we don't actually talk about is women are confident and they are willing to put themselves forward. What happens when they do put themselves forward is that they get punished. And they get punished in these social media platforms where a lot of the times the abuse is coming from anonymous people where we don't know who they are. They are just individuals who are out there spewing their rage and and targeting women. I think there was a recent study done looking particularly at Carol Cadwallader in the UK who broke a lot of the early stories about Russia, about Cambridge Analytica and drew huge amounts of trolling from various sources, both authentic and inauthentic. And so I think hopefully there is growing awareness. This is incredibly chilling in terms of both any kind of public interest discourse, but specifically those that are promulgated by women online. I know in my own organisation, women who have strong online presences are constantly dealing with the worst kinds of threats from anonymous sources and also seemingly inauthentic sources as well. 
So it is something that women now, if they want to join the public conversation, they have to think about how do I deal with this? Psychologically, how do I handle this over time? And that, for me at least as a journalist who's been around for quite a long time, is a very, very different environment to be navigating here. And just to take the conversation to institutions here as well, I mean, women are educating themselves in Western countries, at least in international politics, uh, in government, in law, all those kinds of professional studies that lead to institutional power at greater levels than ever before, often are outstripping men at that level and joining the national security sector in equally great numbers at the entry level. But a lot of studies are kind of showing that once women get into these institutions, they're blocked at certain levels. And that seems to be actually getting worse. Why do you think this is happening? I think that's such an important point, Anastasia. Women do, particularly in on the topic of international relations, women do outnumber men in IR schools. I've done my own study on that. And yet we don't see women at senior levels, whether it's at the US State Department or at the Defense Department, and certainly not at the White House. And I think one of the challenges to that is there is a pipeline issue. And so women are clearly interested in national security. They're interested in international relations. They're obviously interested in diplomacy. And they go into those fields and those careers. But the institutions that they are going into are still controlled largely by an outdated model that was created in the you know 17th, 18th century. The people who created them were largely white men. And they've created a culture that makes it difficult for women, A, to feel comfortable and accepted. And there's always this sense that women have to excel and perform in a far greater capacity than men do. But there is also this culture where women feel uncomfortable being accepted by men. You know, the the boys go out drinking, they'll go out to the bar, or they'll go out golfing. And they're not engaging in group activities that will make everyone feel comfortable. And so there's a lack of mentorship. There is a cultural issue that I think women understandably shy away from. We all want to go into whatever organization it is and feel comfortable and feel accepted and feel that there is a possibility of being heard and moving up the ladder And I think women naturally take themselves out of the running and they go and they move into different areas. And so you'll see a lot of women move into academia where I think the hours are much more flexible and there's just a different working environment where you can work independently, you can work collaboratively, and there's a much more flexible working environment. But when you are looking at governmental institutions, it is still very one-dimensional where we're looking at the world through the lens largely of white men. The other problem that you have in institutions like the State Department and the Defense Department and the White House is, again, I'm going to bring the media in, which is a topic that I know a lot about based on the work that I do. And so The way that you're moving up and getting those senior positions, whether it's the assistant secretary, whether it is the undersecretary, or eventually becoming the secretary of state, is that you're writing and you're getting out there and you're getting your byline in the Washington Post, in the New York Times, you're getting called on the Sunday morning talk shows. Well, again, the men that are able to do that are part of a boys' network where they know the editors 
at the Washington Post, at the New York Times, and you know, on the Sunday talk shows. And they're able to form those connections and write those pieces and gain the credibility and the exposure that a lot of those senior positions really necessitate. And again, women are left out because in the media, the hierarchy is still largely white and male, and it really does disadvantage women. When women do pitch those white and male editors, a lot of them get rejected because I think that there is a tremendous amount of unconscious bias about what women are trying to contribute and the types of pieces that they're trying to contribute. You noted earlier, it's probably not sexy to talk about peace and collaboration and cooperation. And that is what I have found with the women who do pitch the New York Times, that they're really not interested in those pieces. That's a really fascinating insight. And that brings me to your own organization, Interrupter. Can you tell us a little bit about the personal experiences that led you to put together that organization, what it does and what it's trying to achieve? Sure. I started Interrupter in 2014. At the time, I called it Foreign Policy Interrupted, and I've since changed the name because I want it to be more inclusive. And the idea really behind it and the reason that I set it up was I have spent my entire life focused on foreign policy and international relations. It is what I studied in undergrad. It's what I studied in graduate school. My first job out of school was working at the U.S. Department of State. I've had a lifelong commitment to this field, and all of the people that I've interacted with have largely been women. I worked for Madeleine Albright, people like Condi Rice, women like Susan Rice and Samantha Power, and there have always been these women who were in the foreign policy-making field, whether they were as professors or they were in the State Department working on these issues. And yet, whenever I turned around on you know, looking at the New York Times op-ed page or looking on the Sunday talk shows, there was always a lack of women. There was no female representation talking about national security issues or foreign policy issues. And when you go to think tanks like Brookings or the Atlantic Council or the Council on Foreign Relations, all the panels largely were of white men. And the response that you would get from all of those institutions was, well, we don't know a woman who's an expert in that. And my reaction is, I know women who are experts in all of these topics. And so what really compelled me to start this organization was to really show there are the women that are there. And so my organization does two things. One, I put out a weekly newsletter that is a roundup of the week's headlines around the world. And there are only pieces, op-eds, analysis, research, insights by women. So to counter the, there is no female expert in that. It's not just news reports, but real expertise. So I'm really looking at people from think tanks like yours, from academia, from policymaking. The other thing that I do is I run a fellowship program in conjunction with Bard College where I train women on writing op-eds and pitching them and doing a little media training so that women can then understand what's the secret sauce to actually getting into the Washington Post and the New York Times. And my purpose of that really simply is to get to better solutions in policymaking so that women can publish that piece in the New York Times, gain the credibility and actually become the Assistant Secretary of State at the State Department 
and get called to be on the negotiating team, whether it's on the Iran nuclear deal or whether it's on a topic like Iraq or Afghanistan. Clearly, as I mentioned, we have lots of pressing global issues like global public health, climate change, poverty, economic issues. Women are needed to solve all of these problems. Women have different experiences and they have different perspectives. And I think bringing them to the table only enriches and adds value to the possible strategies and solutions that can help us move forward. Running on from our previous discussion about women being able to reach certain positions of power, but then no further, and that seems to be getting actually worse. At the same time, at a social level, gender issues are becoming even more vital and there's a lot more organising around gender inequalities than I think I've seen for a very long time. Is that a reaction against kind of worsening of a situation in terms of access to power for a lot of women? I definitely think power is at the center of it all. One of the first books I assign my class, I teach at Bard College, a class called Foreign Policy in the Time of the Internet. And the very first class is always about power and how power has changed in this era of technology. In the words of Moses Naim, who wrote the book, The End of Power, power is easier to get for all of us but it's harder to hold on to. And because it's easier for all of us to get, you're starting to see people on social media gain followers, gain attraction, have a voice in a way that they previously couldn't when we had a media system that was from one to many. But now we have a social media system that is from many to many. And that allows individuals who are at home, who maybe just you know, a school teacher or who may be somebody who is interested in a particular topic, really show and showcase their, you know, his or her expertise on a particular topic. And I think what that has created is the increase in the trolling that we talked about, but particularly why the glass has gotten thicker for women is that I think a lot of men do feel threatened. I think because women are able to show their talent and their expertise. And the reality is for women to get into senior positions, they do have to work twice as hard as men. And so they are far more talented, articulate, and capable than the men are. And I do think that the men are threatened by that. And so I do think that that's one of the reasons why you're starting to see the glass get much thicker. People naturally want to hold on to their power, and I think that the men don't want to lose it. I think another thing that has happened precisely because of social media is the Me Too movement, I think, has really shaken up a lot of institutions. And I don't think if we didn't have social media that we would have seen the downfall of the likes of Harvey Weinstein or Matt Lauer or Charlie Rose. Because again, what social media did was give voice to women who have always said that these men have sexually assaulted them and preyed on them and done a whole host of just horrible and awful and unconscionable things to them. And I think that men are now becoming much more entrenched and you are seeing them push back. I think that Men are now using the excuse of, I don't want to mentor women because they're going to accuse me of sexual harassment. And that is closed a huge door on women. And I think that, you know, men are seeing the end of 
this pot of gold that they have sat on for such a long time. And now they have to share the riches with a lot of other people. And I think the honest answer is they don't like it. One final point about women as geopolitical actors, and I'm thinking here that there does seem to be a kind of a worldwide battle on for democratic ideals and to preserve democracy and to develop democracy in the face of what is a new kind of globalised authoritarianism which is, of course, often very misogynistic in character. So it's one of the, you know, the key ideological strands of this new authoritarianism. And I'm looking on particular at women on the front lines in, for example, Belarus, their bravery, their persistence. I'm thinking here of the incredible political organisers in the United States that organised in Georgia and in states in the Midwest on explicitly pro-democratic grounds. What do these women need to succeed? to win these battles? I think that's a great point. I think we are seeing a rise of misogyny along with the rise of authoritarian leaders, and that's not a coincidence. I think the strong men are coming to power precisely because they see an opportunity where power is fleeting and they can hold on to it. And a lot of people are really looking for assurance behind a strong leader. And so I think Certainly, that's one aspect of the rise of strong men, whether it is Putin in Russia or Erdogan in Turkey or Orban in Hungary. What women need, the brave women, whether they're in Belarus that you talked about or the women in Georgia, in the United States, or even the women in Afghanistan, is we need to be having these conversations. And I think this conversation, I think, contributes to that. But I think women all over the world need to be having conversations with one another. And I think in the same way that we really saw movement in this country, you know, in the 1960s with the civil rights movement, where African-Americans were able to gain a lot of civil rights, that was largely in part because everybody banded together and there was a high touch communication and a real vision for what they wanted. When you take a look at Me Too, I think another phenomenon of Me Too was women spoke out. We didn't just listen to one woman. Every woman told their story. And then it became a hashtag. And I think that it is profoundly important to continue to have these conversations because we want to see the change, but we also want to make sure that it's not just a conversation we're having within our own capitals. I'm so pleased that your think tank in Australia is looking at these issues, and I would welcome an opportunity to continue having these discussions. And I'd welcome you to be able to talk to, you know, my network, the Interrupter Network. I think, you know, how we make change is when we get out there and we collaborate together. Thank you, Ilmira. We'd love to be part of a continuing conversation, and we'd love to keep asking the question, who is security for? And it has to be for women too. Thank you so much, Anastasia. I really appreciate it. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We look forward to bringing you another episode next week.